Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I am speaking with Isabella Taborowski. Isabella is a contributing writer at Tablet Mag, and she is Senior Program Associate at Wilson Center. Hi, Isabella. Thank you for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So I started following you recently on Twitter, and I mean, I've seen your, I'd seen your stuff come across my timeline. And lately, I mean, okay, I don't want to say just late, but the the huge rise in anti-Semitism that's been happening lately, and it's, you know, there's more coming from the left now than, you know, normally you think of, okay, right wing and stuff like that. So um, if you wouldn't mind giving people just a little bit of your background, and then, you know, we can kind of talk about, like, start talking about where you see this rise coming from. Sure. So it's interesting you say that normally you think anti-Semitism comes from the right. Where I'm from, uh, you never think that it only comes from the right. Uh, I grew up in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. I lived there for 19 years of my life. Um, I remember it very well. I had enough of an experience there to have experienced anti-Semitism. And I know enough of history. I'm a, I'm a historian mm -hmm. kind of by training. And, and the writing that I do is most often connected to the history of Soviet Jewry and also more generally the history of Soviet repressions, political repressions. And uh, anti-Semitism accompanied Soviet history from the beginning and uh, to the very end. It took different forms. And of course, the Soviet Union was guided by far-left ideology. And so as a Soviet Jew, I know very well that anti-Semitism can come from the left as well. Again, it takes a different form. Uh, and so the form that it that is it's appearing in today in the United States is very much familiar to me and other ex-Soviet Jews and Jews from generally from the socialist bloc. So what Americans, American Jews call often new anti-Semitism, it's there's nothing new to me at all in it. The the form that we're seeing now uh, dates back to, you could say dates back to the to Stalin's time, maybe even before, but in a very pronounced form, in a very, very kind of specific way in which we're seeing it now, uh, it dates back to 1967, I would say. So that's okay. very briefly. Okay, thanks. Like about that, because now I, when I was back in university, so this is going, uh, you know, this for me, this is the late 80s, early 90s. I did a poli-sci degree. And I, I don't know why, I guess maybe it was because of the fall of communism. So it was kind of in the news a lot. I took a lot of courses on Central and Eastern Europe and, you know, so, I mean, I, I was aware of these kind of things that was, that were going on, but when I, yeah, when I said, it, you know, you kind of expect it in the right wing, that would be more, I guess, you know, an American thing or a Western centric view of the, the matter Correct. because. Correct. I mean, we learned, I mean, I learned about the Holocaust, but we didn't really learn about what happened in the purges under Stalin. You know, we didn't really learn about the Great Leap Forward. I mean, okay, the Great Leap Forward. I don't want to conflate Maoism with anti-Semitism because, I mean, it's, but you know, we didn't learn about communism. We didn't learn. We learned what it was. We learned, okay, this is a communist system. This is what they mean. But we didn't learn about what was going on in those regimes, as much as was discussed about Nazism. Precisely, and that is the question that I ask myself, and I, that I've asked publicly, and it still remains a big puzzle to me about why, why is it that the history of communism, or forget communism, communism is an ideology. Mm -hmm. How about the history of the Soviet Union? Why has it not been 
taught. I mean, the Soviet Union was for decades kind of an existential enemy of the United States, right? Why is it that Americans don't know anything about that history? Again, uh, in comparison, you're absolutely right to Nazi Germany. Anybody can rattle off, basically, you see it on Twitter, the most frequent historical analogy that people make and jump to, accurately or not, but it's it's Nazi Germany, right? It's Hitler. Uh, very few people have knowledge uh, to create an analogy or to make an analogy to what happened in the Soviet Union. It's a big question for me. You know, we can hazard guesses here, but the fact is that people are very, very ignorant about it. And even, and th- this fascinates me the most, uh, is that, that American Jewry, actually, which for like a quarter of a century fought very actively for Soviet Jews. There was a whole big movement. I don't know if you're aware of it, but a whole Mm. big movement to save, uh, to free the Soviet Jews. So certainly American Jews um, of that generation uh, who were marching very, were very active in the movement in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they knew that there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union, but somehow they have not passed this on to the next generation. Again, I just, the right-wing, left-wing thing, because there was an article in, I'm trying to remember if it was an op-ed, I think it was an op-ed in the New York Times in 2018, and this was, it came out a couple of weeks after the Tree of Life um, shooting. So, I mean, and they, it was pretty much said outright in there, and they were, I believe they were quoting a police officer, and, you know, 22, or, or the attacks, the anti-Semitic attacks for the previous 22 months had come from what you would describe as left wing. And so they weren't really reported on. Like This is my pet little tinfoil hat theory on this. It's that they spent so long, at least, at least since like nine 11, they spent demeaning the right and saying the right is evil. And, you know, I, and like I never identified with the right or whatever, anything like that, but, and I can, you know, point out like things like the tea party, all kinds of things that went on. It's become so easy now to, you have to disassociate yourself with that. So I'll fast forward a little bit to, you know, fast forward to this year. And there was, a, I think it was another op-ed in the New York Times about how shouldn't highlight these anti-Semitic attacks because it helps the Republicans. And you look at those two things and I'm like, you know, you sh- you know you're worried about the anti-Semitic, you know, if you're worried that the anti-Semitic attacks are going to help the Republicans, maybe you're, you know, you're, focusing on the wrong thing here. Like, let's focus on people being attacked, not on right. what that might help. Like, it's just, it's a weird thing. Like I, I you know, and these are people who preach tolerance and love and blah, 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 right. but right. they're willing to forego this. Well, you know, yeah, there is, there is a lot, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on there. One is that um, the left has said for years um the left has attempted for years, this, by the way, also goes back to the Soviet Union, but the left has said for years that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are not the same thing. Now, what is anti-Zionism? Anti-Zionism, they say, is criticism of the state of Israel. It's, it's a funny language trick that they do there because, look, anybody can criticize the state of Israel and it's not anti-Semitic. Jews do it all the time. Israelis do it all the time. It's the national sport in Israel, right? But what what the difference is that 
what the left does, what the far left does, I should say, is that it actually questions the state, the right of the state of Israel to exist. It uh, it completely uh, it, defa- it demonizes the kind of foundational ideology of the state of Israel uh, called Zionism. It turns it into something that it's completely not, and that is something that, by the way, comes straight from the Soviet Union. This kind of demonization that Zionism is racism, Zionism is colonialism, Zionism is you know Zionists collaborated with the Nazis, that kind of a thing. So. So they they begin to say, well, it's not anti-Semitic to say that, but at some point it does become anti-Semitic. If you if you say that the state of Israel has no right to exist, well, you're essentially saying that what is it, six seven million Jews have no right. Like, where what are you going to do with them, right? Where are you going to put them? Uh, nobody says that the state of I don't know, France doesn't have a right to exist because France was once a colonial power. Therefore, let's erase it from the face of the earth, right? Let's erase Britain from the face of the earth because it was one of the worst colonies in the the colonial powers, right? So it's like you can point to whatever sins of any country, but nobody ever says that it doesn't have a right to exist. So what the Soviet Jews know is that anytime this this so-called anti-Zionism rhetoric flourishes, it's, it's, it's basically anti-Semitic. It's anti-Semitic in intention and in consequences. And this is the kind of, this is the problem that we have now is that a lot of this rhetoric from the left comes in the form of anti-Zionism as they call it, anti-Israelism. And so they believe that they can just go off the deep end with it. And of course, what we saw in May when there was the latest confrontation between uh, Israel and Hamas is precisely how this anti-Zionist rhetoric and anti-Israel rhetoric translates into anti-Semitic acts. This was, this was something that Soviet Jews know, just like we just know it because we, we've seen it in action before. Uh, and so now the left has a little bit of a problem. That's why you had that op-ed, I think I know what you're referring to, this recent op-ed uh, in, um, in the New York Times, which said something about like stop with the, you know, with the anti-Zionist rhetoric because it helps the the right. Uh, because now now they're in a real bind because now there are real violent acts of anti-Semitism coming from the left. Now, like with the anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism thing, like one thing I've noticed is so, you know, I think it was like 2015 was the last time before the before what happened in May 2015. I think was the last time you had a real heated exchange between Hamas and, and Israel, like rockets back and forth. Now there- 14, 2014, I think. Uh, now, Be- before. You, mm-hmm. yeah, you didn't have this level of attack on Jewish people as you as you did now, like this past May. But one thing I'm looking at this, and like you brought up, you know, the colonialism stuff, and obviously now Israel was, was, was formed in 48, so that's well before, you know, Edward Said and post-colonialism, but- Post-colonialism plays a part in that, but I mean that like things I saw in like all the BLM protests um, last year, there was you know synagogues got attacked, and they're like, oh well, that's property, and property is whiteness. So this equating of Jewish people with whiteness, I mean, it's kind of like okay, well, you know what, no one really cares anymore, so we can go after them. So it was kind of like a carte blanche to you know for those attacks because you've demonized whiteness, you've made whiteness something awful and evil. And then you start equating like Jewish people with it. You know, Asians are getting equated with whiteness. 
I don't know if I'm like kind of stretching, but I get from in my mind, that's the difference between, you know, like 2014 and now is 2014. You didn't have all this rhetoric coming out. You didn't, I mean, it might've been, it was in the Academy and it was kind of, you know, hidden or whatever, but like I said, am I stretching or is this, or am I kind of onto something with that? I think you're completely correct. I think that's exactly it because we're now in a, in a very different environment where in fact, all of that, it's very extremist rhetoric, which has existed. It has lived on campuses. It has lived in the academic circles for, for many for many years. When people who watch these things have been kind of ringing, uh, uh, you know, ringing the alarm uh, on that for, for a while. But now we're in an environment, what was the article? I'm sure I'm quoting a title of somebody's article. We're all now living on, on, on campus. <laughs> you know, we are, <laughs> do you know what was, I'm talking about? Yeah, that was Andrew Sullivan. Okay, that's exactly it. You know, we th- this rhetoric is everywhere. It's in our institutions. It's it's in uh, it's in the editorial offices of newspapers, and uh, and yeah, absolutely, this crackpot theories, which are fine in an academic environment, uh, but when you bring them into real life, they create tremendous damage because they they don't correspond to reality. You know, I just listened to your talk with uh, Batya with Batya Ungar Sarkon, I think that she, she made the same point that, uh, that that rhetoric just should just stay in that academic behind the academic walls and not be allowed into real life. But I think you're absolutely correct. Yes. And, and not only that, they've managed also, and this is maybe not the academe, uh, not the academic theories, but I think it's the activists, the far left activists, the pro-Palestinian activists, which I say, you know, kind of, I put scare quotes around this because I'm not sure these people are actually pro-Palestinian. I think that they are, they certainly seem to be pro-Hamas, you know, in their rhetoric because they're very extreme. So they they um, they have managed to equate Israel with whiteness as well over the years, which is a com- completely absurd, ridiculous thing to say because if anybody, if, if you've ever been to Israel, you will see that, uh, you would know that, first of all, 60% of Israelis are from the Middle East. They're, they're Jews from the Middle East. You can't tell them by color from Arabs. There is a certain percentage of Ethiopian Jews. Uh, and, and what you come and you, you describe this country as white. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there are outright lies. There is, there is a lot of distortions and manipulations and there are outright lies. Because, I mean, like, I know a lot of people are making comparisons to uh, Mao's Red Guard. Uh, like I said, you know, I'd studied a bit about, you know, like the, the, so the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet bloc. I, and, but this has a lot of similar, I mean, and I, I wrote a th- piece about how this is very similar to Islam. I mean, it's, there's a very dogmatic aspect to all this stuff coming out of the Academy. And now, I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, like, you know, the ACLU for Christ's sakes, you know, if we're going to lose yeah, that, exactly. if we're going to lose them, like who else are we? So right. would you mind like, comparing or contrasting like the two ways of thinking as far as you can? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe actually, maybe the best way to, to do it is I can tell you when I first kind of began to make this parallel. And by the way, I have read your new, your Newsweek piece and I found it fascinating that we both uh, we find these parallels with very different structures and societies, right? But they're still, they're both the Islamic society and the Soviet society, but they're both, they're, they're very clear parallels with what's happening now. And I think the common 
thing here is kind of authoritarianism. And I think of it as almost like a totalitarian way of thinking. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this is what's what's yeah. happening kind of on, on my end as I think about it. But the first time this comparison came to me in a very clear way was uh, almost exactly a year ago. I think it was in June of last year when, uh, do you remember that famous um infamous op-ed that uh, the New York Times pub published by Tom Cotton, yeah. um, which which set off the whole crisis yeah. <laughs> inside the New York Times um, newsroom. And uh, what happened is that, and then, and then, of course, Barry Weiss walked into mm-hmm. it. And you, of course, know, I'm sure who Barry is, I'm sure your listeners know as well. But she, she was, a, she had a position in the uh, op-ed, um, on the op-ed page, page, I think she was an editor there. And so she she commented on this crisis, and I I knew Barry because she actually had used my research in her book How to Fight Antisemitism, and we connected and we met when she was on book tour. So so I kind of felt that we have we think about things in in, in in about many things in a similar way, and so so I kind of felt an affinity to her. And so one morning I wake up and I see that her name is trending on Twitter, and I'm like, what's going on? And I start reading and I see. I mean, we know what happens when social mob goes after someone, right? Really ugly rhetoric, uh, just completely, you know, just dirt being poured over her. And I start reading all of that and I gradually understand what happens. And basically all of it is because she expressed an opinion about what was happening inside the New York Times without naming anyone, uh, simply expressing an opinion. And, And I'm starting to have this sinking feeling like, I've seen this before because what you had in the Soviet Union, there was a whole kind of tradition of collective demonization and collective denunciation of prominent cultural figures. So whenever a cultural figure came, uh, fell out of favor with the party, there would be this thing. It usually started with the media. Like there would be a lot of times it's uh, some kind of a newspaper in a prominent art, uh, uh, an article in a prominent newspaper. Then this theme continues in other newspapers and it begins to spread, right? This is before social media, but it acts like social media. because It's like contagion, except that it's ordered from, from above. Um, and then this person starts to get discussed at obligatory political education meetings. And so, and so I'm reading all of this and I'm like, wow, this is, this is really, I'm having these crazy parallels. This is just insane. And I wrote something on Twitter uh, referencing that. I think I said something like, okay, comrades, are we going to have a show trial for Barry Weiss? So we're going to put her on, on, on a show trial. And, and that got some attention. And my editors from Tablet called me and said, do you want to expound on that? And so I wrote a piece which was called the American Soviet mentality. And that really hit something in the, uh, like it really produced a lot of conversation, was read very widely, shared widely, where I compared this collective demonization that I was seeing happen against Barry to probably one of the most famous cases of that kind of demonization in the Soviet Union that, that was against Boris Pasternak, of course, a very famous writer. Um, it was, it was a case that's still remembered. It's, it's a case, if you go into Wikipedia of the famous, of the writers who lived at the time, there will be a note whether that person participated in the, in the demonization of Pasternak or not. I mean, it left 
a huge trauma kind of on the psyche um, of, of the Soviet people and the Russian people today. And those who refuse to bend to the pressure and to you know, participate in the demonization, there was massive pressure to do that. Um, like that's, you just know that those were, those are, those are, that is also noted in, those, noted in those people's biography. And that is like almost the most important thing about them because th these are moments when it becomes clear who is um, a person, I don't know, who, who, who is a person of integrity, who is a person uh, who is willing to live in truth uh, and who is not. And so, so that was, the, in that piece I compared, I could, what I could see there was that we're in a culture of collective demonization where a person could lose their career, their job, their reputation based on a libel, based on, on somebody's, uh, based on a gossip, um, without investigation, without due process, without any consideration for um, you know, um, innocent until proven guilty without any of it. You could just destroy a person. And it was happening a lot last summer. I'm sure you remember. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, so, so for me, that is where it, it, it begins. It, it, I could see this sort of wave of uh, groupthink and kind of domination of the, of the collective over the individual that was a very, very important attribute, a central attribute of, uh, of, of the Soviet experience, which a lot of people are not aware of. Even those people who study the Soviet Union, often they don't get to this part. And it's a part that you almost have to experience viscerally in order to truly understand. The Islam communism thing. I mean, during the Cold War, you had, you know, Libya and Syria were allied with the Soviet Union, I mean, Soviet Union needed oil and they needed allies. And so you had that. But I mean, there has been a tenuous, you know, relationship between Islam and communism. Like South Yemen, like after the Civil War, South Yemen was a communist state. I mean, the, the revolution in Iran wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the communist students that helped the, the mullahs. Like there were, there were communist students that went along with the Iranian revolution, the Islamic revolution in Iran. And then the Ayatollahs afterwards then went, you know, um, backstabbed the communist students that helped them out. Some, like, there were sections of communist students that were with, in the protests with the, like, in the Iranian Islamic Revolution. Uh, okay, explain that to me because I don't, I, I realize I don't actually understand it. Where I thought you were going to was that actually. I was just talking about the, the, the connection between Islam and communism. Like, they, they actually, there has been, like, Islam and communism. They share, okay, like you mentioned, they're both authoritarian. So, mm -hmm. and, and they are, and they're both, you know, fundamentalist Islam is a very totalitarian way of looking. I mean, you, they control you down to which foot you use to walk into the washroom. I mean, if you're really, really pious, you're supposed to walk into the washroom with your left foot. You know, like, so, I mean, it, 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 it does control down to that level, but it also has that aspect of community. It's, you're all one, you know, you're the, the ummah, so, you know, you're all comrades, so that went along. Like I was just trying to say, like there has been connections between Islam and communism before. Like they, there's because they are similar, they can kind of glom onto each other. You know, this it's it's very interesting for me to hear this because um, because of course 
at least Soviet communism, was very much anti-religion in general. And when they uh, took over Central Asia, the Central Asian um, areas, they went pretty far also to, to eliminate Islam as far as I, as I know. And um, so what you, but what you're saying now is that even in those, even in the years of the Soviet Union, they were, that they could find a way to collaborate. Is that what you're saying? Or? Well, okay, they were collaborating with Syria and Libya. They were getting oil, for, okay, so that's, that's a monetary well, that's, thing. Okay, that's a monetary thing. But like I said, right? South, when, yep, when, when there was South Yemen, South Yemen was a communist nation. Afghanistan flirted with communism uh, before the Soviets came in. Like I said, that's it, a very good point. Yeah, Iran had so there are it's it's not there. Okay, obviously the religious aspects, you know, the anti-religion stuff, they're just going to leave. You know, they're, they're like Muslims aren't going to take that, but the community aspect of it, because even in Islam, I mean, if you really go down to it, like the charity with the zakat and all that, you are supposed to be charitable. You are supposed to give to the community. You are supposed to look, you know, look after each other. Like, you know, that those are your brothers and sisters in Islam. So like, those are your comrades. And so there was a lot that they could find similar that they could pick and choose off of. Mm-hmm. So they could leave aside the thing like, don't, you know, don't have a religion because, you know, whatever Marxism, Stalinism, you know, the state is the God basically. Right. right? Like, I mean, so it was very easy to shift. I mean, it's just, like lately, I've just been saying, like you know, forget right, left, liberal, conservative, blah blah blah. It's authoritarian or it's you know libertarian. It's it, those are the two camps yeah. that, that we have to choose between right now, and yeah, you know, it, it's like there's I, a lot I, of similarities. Sorry, no, yeah, I I agree with you. I actually think that the distinctions between the far left and the far right are far less important. Uh, than a lot of people think. I think what's important is the distinction between the extremes or the extremists and everybody who is in the center. Uh, And not just in the center, but everybody, you know, like not not entirely in the center, but everybody who would not consider themselves on the extremes. Uh, Because I think that the extremists are just really dangerous, whether they're on the left, on the far left, or on the far right. And I think that the... The hardest thing for us in this moment in America is to recognize this because in many ways it seems that we're very we're very divided, right? It's very hard for people to kind of extend their hand across the aisle. But I think we have to. I think that people, sort of normal, uh, normal left wing people, and normal right wing people, um, you know, who are I don't know from liberal to conservative Democrats and from liberal to conservative Republicans all, all have much more in common than they have with their own extremes. Yeah. And in order to, but they, the extremes of, sorry, I'm just going to finish. The extremes yeah. are very loud and very much empowered. And, and I think we need to realize that our war is not with each other, but against the extremes. Yeah. And I mean, like some of this extremist rhetoric, like you're, you're talking about like, the, you know, the, the left and the right people talk about the horseshoe theory. And I, since I came back from overseas, I mean, like the people talk about the horseshoe theory, I'm like, there is no more horseshoe. It's a circle. I mean, it's it's, yes. it's very hard yes. to tell the difference between, you know, like in my mind anyways, I know like I got into an argument with someone or argument, well, went back and forth with a few tweets. And I said, you know, very hard in my mind to differentiate between Ibram Kendi and Richard Spencer. Like I, like their, their rhetoric oh. is, you know, 
Totally. No, totally. Look, and, and like if you take Ilhan Omar, you know, oh. she was praised by David Duke. You know, so why is it that like David Duke, I think it was a couple of years ago in 2019 when um, uh, when she said something anti-Semitic and the Congress wanted to pass a resolution on anti-Semitism and it failed. They couldn't do it because they feared that, uh, you know, so they said they feared that it would somehow trigger attacks on Alejandro Mar, even though the resolution didn't mention her at all. And in that moment, it was then that David Duke said that Ilhan Omar is now the most important member of Congress. So they, they, they speak the same words and you can actually see it most clearly. For me, this from where I sit, there are probably other examples as well. But when it comes to anti-Semitism, I mean, they're both, it's, they speak in the same words. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, okay, this is not anti-Semitism, but this was in, I'm going to get the date probably wrong, but I believe it was 2015 or maybe it was 2016, but it was an article I'd read about how BLM had been, there were 75 campuses where they got segregated dorms of one form or another. And the KKK cheered them on. It's like, okay, yes. you know, at one point or other, when the KKK is cheering you on, you might want to take a step back and think yes. if you're doing the right thing. <laughs> no, that's ex that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, no, I mean, the current racialization of everything, I mean, I just find it, again, I, I look at it through a Jewish lens. And I honestly, like, when I look at the implications of what they're doing, uh, right, without look, going too deep into the theory, I, I don't even understand how, after what happened in the 20th century, right, the racial theories that the Nazis had, I mean, we know what that led to. How, how can we permit that to become so central in our ongoing discourse? I mean, some of it sounds just like kind of the Nazi discourse about race. It's completely crazy. Yeah, okay, the, the discourse around race and all that, like, so, like, with this, like, like I said, you're, you're demonizing white people. But it's it's not just it's it's those equating those traits to white people. So like I mean I don't, I'm sure you've seen them or if you haven't like you know professionalism, love of the written word, uh, you know punctuality, individualism, objectivity. It's saying that those are white things and people who take on those traits and demonizing that and then again like demonizing the people who take on those traits. So it's like this this is what. This is the inconsistency with this stuff. I mean, all like all dogmas, they're, they're you know they have a lot of like you know in, logical inconsistencies internally. Okay, the idea of race was started by white people. Yes, it was started by Europeans who started classifying everything. And you know, right. now by the '60s, we got around to the you know we got around to thinking that okay, this is a wrong way of doing it. Let's get away from that. And we were slowly getting away from that. Then this identitarianism comes back, but. You know, they said, okay, we're going to keep the black identity. Like if you look at, you know, so some of the stuff Crenshaw wrote, you look at the black feminists and, you know, we want to keep the black identity. Fine. You want to keep that identity. You want to reclaim it. Power to you. But now if, you know, Jewish people have taken on whiteness, Asians have taken on whiteness, you are taking that same idea and you're putting whiteness on other people. You're classifying them. I mean, you're doing this thing. Like I said, it, it, it's so hypocritical and it's, you know, they admit that, you know, they'll, they'll talk about Trump's, you know, 
oh, he's talked about the Wuhan virus and all this, blah, 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 the Wuhan flu, this and that. And that's demonizing Asians. And that's why you see attacks on Asians. But continuously calling Asians white and saying that whiteness is evil and these people have taken on whiteness. I mean, there was a video, there was a video on Twitter where, you know, and there's a few of them where they walked into stores run by Asians and just say, oh, give me this because I, you know, you owe it to me because you have whiteness. And it's, it's like, this is insanity. You're, you're, you're driving people to it. And you're doing the same thing that was done to you. You're taking a classification and you're putting on others and you're putting a target on their backs. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. It's so damaging. And among other things, uh, what I think it, it, it may happen, what, what may, what may happen is that there will be, God forbid, a reaction from the far right, from the actual white nationalists, uh, from the actual white supremacists that ultimately, you know, you talk about it more and you're going to provoke, you know, some very dangerous people. And I mean, it, it's it's so damaging. It's, it almost seems to be, I don't know, it's it's it's, it's just it's just incredibly dangerous, uh, damaging. And yes, exactly. Um, um, hypocritical and. And it, it kind of shows just the inconsistencies, right? Just the poor thinking uh, in whatever theory underlies all of it. Because how is it that all of a sudden people of color who are from Asia, you suddenly call them white? I mean, it's just, it, is, it just makes zero sense. Uh, and the fact that I also particularly object to, and I'm not the only one, I'm sure, is that they somehow feel that they can, uh, and by they, of course, I mean the, the woke, for lack of a better, I'll start from the beginning. I think one of the things that uh, I find particularly hypocritical is how the the woke will say, uh, well, everybody has a right to kind of define and describe their own identity. But when it comes to Asians, when it comes to Jews, somehow they feel that they can define our identity for us. And that's, I, I just find it just exceptionally hypocritical <laughs> i want to go back to something you'd mentioned earlier like about the islam thing and it just maybe because i've just been seeing so many comparisons that i, I, I kind of i don't know if you read the book by nick cohen uh uh, uh is it uh what's left mm-hmm. okay so he wrote about um you know the iran iraq war he wrote about the the like the the Iran like the Iranian Revolution, but then he also wrote about how the fall of communism and how the left in the West after the fall of communism, so the socialist left in the West, they had nothing else, so they went anti-imperialist, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of siding with you know, like you have people like Galloway, you know, in the UK, you had all that, and then you know, Bernie Sanders and Linda Sarsour. I mean, like there is a thing going on there now with the woke, you know, whatever you want to call them. Like, I, I don't know these, these labels are kind of silly, but w- with them in that, you know, that you found, you found with Islam, you know, some allies, like there is, you know, there's anti-Semitism from, from the woke side, you know, there's obviously anti-Semitism in Islam, you know, so like it's that, but it's, it's at the same point. Like you have someone like Linda Sarsour, Ilhan Omar, who can take on like this mantle of victimhood and they're given woke points and then, you know, they're protected now. Like, it's like, you know, like, I don't, I don't know if you've, if you can comment on like the, 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 
the connection between the two or if you've seen it or like, you know, things like that? Well, I think to be honest with you, um, and I want to also be clear that, uh, you know, I, I'm not an expert on Islam and I certainly don't want to. I, I was just kind of playing off of what you had said in your piece. Um, but what I do see is that the connection there for me is, uh, is Israel, the anti-Israel um, sentiment. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it always existed on the far left, on the socialist left. Uh, this, is, this is what I believe today's socialists have inherited from the Soviet Union, whether they know it or not. But I think that it comes from there because the USSR invested a lot of effort into demonizing Israel internationally. Uh, they did it for their own reactionary reasons. They, the, the Soviets did it for their own for, for foreign policy reasons and for domestic reasons, right? Because they wanted to keep dominating the Middle East and they wanted to uh, kind of keep the Jews down uh, at home. Uh, but so they were, they were demonizing Israel and they were demonizing Zionism. And so I think that in some measure, I mean, the Western left had its own kind of thing going on, uh, no doubt. But I think that to a con considerable extent, the Soviets brought that strain of thought very strongly there. And we, of course, see it with the UN resolution Zionism is racism, which opened the door to all kinds of things. So I think that that, that is the connection that I see. There are maybe others, but this is the one that really matters to me because both are very, very strongly um, anti-Israel. Yeah, the, the, the Zionism, like, I can see where you're coming. Like, again, that's, I think that that is a leftover from the nineties of when the socialist left went to an anti-imperialist stance, you know, because communism had fallen everywhere except for Cuba, um, you know, and whatever you want to call it in China right now, because it's, you know, it's not quite communism, but, um, you know. but yeah, like it's like something else you'd mentioned. Cause I, like, these are the things I'm, I'm really concerned about. Like th that, like I, I get concerned about that close connection with other fundamentalist ideas like Islam. Um, but you talked about, okay, what if the far right, you know, this is going to fuel the far right. Like I'm not concerned about it fueling the far right. What I'm concerned about it is uh, there've been a couple articles that have come out and there were a couple of things. I think there was one article in uh, the APA. Like, I don't know if it's the American psychology association or psychiatry association, but it talked about little kids and how little kids you know, among black and Latino racial identity had grown and you were starting to see a rise in consciousness of racial identity among white kids that you didn't have before. And there were a couple articles out about general, generally that people are wanting to have a white racial identity, Americans. Now, you know, like I said, if someone wants to hold on to that black identity and it, it, you know, reclaim it or whatever that's fine but i mean at the same point ident identitarian movements i don't care if it's by race if it's by color I mean, if it's by religion or what any kind of identitarian movement leads to violence and if you, you know you've got a majority white country with basically one gun per person you know like right and right. you're gonna stoke racial animosity like okay completely now, th this is what really gets to me. It's, this is coming from academics, right? So, I mean, like, I think in the last year, universities and experts have lost so much 
credibility, but this is coming from the you know academia. Like, how are supposedly rational people who are supposed to think things through think it's a good idea to awaken a white racial identity? You got me there. I am truly, I'm just perplexed, uh, just perplexed. You know, and and what you said about all of this kind of stoking um, racial animosity. I, I, again, have a parallel to that. Um, you know, the Nazis weren't the only one who were classifying people by race. The Soviets were doing that as well. They were, it wasn't so much about race, uh, but it was along ethnic lines, right? They were obsessively cl- classifying, because they inherited this multi-ethnic empire from, there were dozens of uh, ethnicities, they called them nationalities, living in the country, over a hundred, I think. And so, and so they, they, and they attached various uh, traits to them. You know, they attached kind of security concerns to different ethnic groups. And so, it, again, it was just it was obsessive. And so, what happened? And they, they kind of because for as long as the Soviet Empire existed, right, and was ruled with the iron fist and all that, and total control over everything, uh, all of that was kind of kept uh, more or less quiet. But as soon as the perestroika comes and it starts to fall apart, they or or not even fall apart yet, but the control begins to loosen, right? And people begin to feel it. You start to have ethnic tensions and real bloodshed breaking out along the edges of the empire. And uh, and part of it, and a lot of some of it was ancient, some of it was kind of you know had a very long history attached to it. But I'm sure that some of it had to do with the fact that they. They had managed these ethnic groups in Moscow the way they saw fit for themselves and not the way these groups saw themselves, not the way they saw their territories kind of. And so, and so then, then the bloodshed begins. So this is the, I completely share your concern with you. I think that it's anytime you begin to classify people by ethnicity or by color of their skin, it's just, it's, it's just a prelude to something to disaster, in my view. Yeah, okay. I mean, I worked in Bosnia, and I spoke to a lot of people out there, mm. and it was the same thing. I mean, you know, uh, Milosevic. There's a really good documentary that was done uh, called you know, the, the the Fall of a Nation, and it was a, it was like five hours, and it was specifically on the fall of Yugoslavia. And, but you know how Milosevic stirred up ancient national you know enmities and brought brought them back, and. It, one thing I learned when I was in Bosnia was in that region of the world, there'd been a war every year, like once every 50 years for like the last thousand years. And, it was, right. and it's exactly. and it's all because exactly. of, you know, division by identity. We're the only people that look back at our history. Like the Soviets don't really, or I, I mean, I guess maybe now in Russia they do, but the Soviets weren't looking back at their atrocities and, you know, saying, oh, we shouldn't do this, you know. The CCP isn't doing that. <laughs> you know, Saudi Arabia isn't looking back at all their conquests and saying, oh, we should think on that. Like, you know, like yeah, cancel ourselves. <laughs> <yeah>. right? <laughs> no, I mean, we're, right. we are the only, and I, and I think it's good. And I think, you know, I'm not saying this stuff shouldn't be talked about. I'm not saying this shouldn't be taught in schools or anything like that, but we shouldn't flagellate ourselves for it because the fact that we do it is something to be proud of because we are looking back and saying, look, you know, we were wrong. We won't do it again. Yeah. And, you know, like, like, well, that's exactly that's exactly right. I, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, no. Um, 
That's that's exactly right. You know, we ha- the the beauty of this society uh, of liberal democracy is that you can't. It's it's not like we didn't know about slavery until mm-hmm. last year, right? Mm-hmm. We've known about it and we have addressed it. And maybe there are ways to address it differently and in a better way. But it doesn't mean that you should cancel America or Canada or cancel the American identity. In fact, I think the power of, of this country, I don't know Canada very well, but of America, is, is that you can come in as a new immigrant, as I did, and within your lifetime, I mean, you get citizenship and, and you become an American and you are, you're viewed as an American. And all that's really, you know, what, what's needed from you is, is, is your hard work and your dedication and you wanting to be part of the society. And yes, you'll always have your accent and yes, you'll, you'll, you'll always have your own culture. And that's okay. That can coexist. But knowing that you have this umbrella identity as an American, it's an incredibly powerful thing. Incredibly just, powerful thing. I don't want to keep it much longer. I just have one, like, kind of go on just one last final point. Now, you said you were in the Soviet Union uh, until you were 19, and then you left. Now, again, if you want to, wouldn't mind just talking about some of this. Like, when you left the Soviet Union and you came to the West, were you kind of amazed? Like, were you there through like Glasnost and Perestroika? So, I mean, did you start seeing an opening up of information there? But, or when you came to the West, when you started reading about things, were you kind of like, oh my God, this actually happened in our country? Like, was there that? And I'm kind of, I'm trying to equate this to like, sorry, I'm just going to ramble for a second. I look back at like the, you know, the quote unquote golden age of Islam and how that ended. And when that ended, you know, you had people like Al-Ghazali saying, we don't need to study anymore. The only, you know, the only philosophy we need to study glorifies Islam. We don't need any more new maths. We don't need any more new science. We just glorify Islam. I mean, that was a thousand year atrophy of, you know, the search for knowledge. Now, like when you saw the Soviet Union, again, like in the Soviet Union, I mean, censorship was a big thing. So I'm assuming like, you know, there's, it's it's hard to get information. So you don't even know which questions to ask. So like when you see that kind of stuff coming up here, like, again, does that ring parallels to you? Or like, is it, I, I, I see the parallels with Islam and I'm like, you're, you're crippling yourselves. And do you worry about that? Totally. Totally. Um, look, I, um, I describe it in an article I wrote recently for Ariel where, you know, Perestroika started in, in around 2015, which, so I was 15 that, uh, sorry, what did I say? Not 2015, <laughs> um, 1985. So I was uh, 15 then. And, you know, it began to open information channels. I think one of the most important things that they began to do that impacted people is that they began to talk about, uh, they began to publish books that had not been published before, like they would publish books that had been sitting on, in a drawer somewhere for 50 years because of censorship. And suddenly, and really truly powerful books by great masters, by great writers like Pasternak, like Vasily Grossman, like Solzhenitsyn. And you read those books and the world, like the, a whole new world opens up to you. And you start to ask yourself, how, how is it that I lived in this country and I didn't know any of it? Why did they hide this from me, right? Why could I not read these books? Uh, same with music, uh, same with other forms of art. Um, 
And they began to open a little bit to the West. But still, I mean, coming to the United States, it was just a major culture shock in terms of um, in terms of just the just realizing that the world that, that you really know nothing, you're completely helpless in this world. Even when you are like my parents, they were very accomplished people, educated, professionals. And yet we come into that new world. And because we had lived behind the Iron Curtain, you know, it's like you start like a baby again. Um, and, and I mean, America just blew me away in, in so many ways, just conceptually as a country of the rule of law, as a country where the uh, presumption of, in, of innocence is, is a rule, right? Freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of the press. It's, it's hard to describe just how amazing it is to experience it for the first time if you had never experienced it. And I think I wrote in, in that piece that it made me realize that actually the Soviet Union never stood a chance against the United States because, you know, here you could discuss any idea that, that came up and it was a true kind of marketplace of ideas and a contest of ideas in every, in every sphere. So, so yeah, it was just an incredible experience. So when I look at the trends today, when it's considered completely fine not to publish a book because, I don't know, the staff of a publishing company disagrees with the opinion of the author, I just, I find it shocking uh, because what, like, what do they think, what do they think will happen? I mean, eventually, as any kind of authoritarian thinking, this will end too. And then these books will get published and they will get known. And, and, and then what? It's just, it's just such a narrow-minded thinking. Um, so, yeah, so it concerns me. It's like it, it concerns me that there are some opinions that cannot be expressed that are completely legitimate opinions. But just because they don't fit the narrative, they cannot be published, they cannot be discussed, it limits us. It makes us stupid. <laughs> it makes us incapable to deal with reality. Because the thing is, the reality doesn't stop, you know, like, again, I wrote in that piece, like, for example, you know, the Soviet Union was in, in Afghanistan for how long? For um, ten years, eight years, ten, maybe yeah. 10, maybe a full decade. So, so just because Soviet newspapers did not inform us about what was going on, didn't stop the reality of Soviet troops being there. It didn't stop the soldiers uh, from getting ma maimed and, and, and hurt and killed. And it didn't stop uh, the trends that that war set off from, from continuing. So for 10 years, we didn't have the information. So 10 years later, it's harder to cope with the information because we, we didn't know what was happening. So reality doesn't stop. You can stop writing about it, but uh, who's going to be the loser? Yeah. Okay. The one thing you mentioned on that, just like the last thing, I'll just say this. So, the golden age of Islam, you had people, like I said, like Al-Ghazali, but then you had other people like Avros. After the sack of uh, Baghdad, and when the Mongols receded, all the people like Avros, there was, you know, all the free thinkers, even though they were religious, but all the free thinkers, their writings, and some of them to this day in some Middle Eastern countries are still not allowed in. So when you talked about like, you know, Solzhenitsyn and all that, and you're like, okay, so you, you've denied... You know, you've denied the Middle Eastern countries, you know, especially like the North Africans and the Persians, because that's where most of these thinkers came from. You've denied them their own history. And so now when you go into, you know, the Middle East and they talk about enlightenment values, 
and again, this because some of this comes from the post-colonialism. Oh, that's a Western idea. It's like no, you know, the ideas of Averroes, which you know they, those people took from the Greeks, that came to Europe and that helped seed the Enlightenment. These are not Western ideas; these are human ideas, and they belong to everyone. And it's like you are, like this stuff is doing so much damage. When I see it around the world, I see it in India where women's rights are being trampled on because of like the gender theory and oh the they have always had you know, multiple genders look at the hijras they don't know anything about it and what's going on in the middle east you know like it's this again another form of colonialism sorry like i said i i, I told you one last thing and i rambled on some more <laughs> no listen i i don't mind i i actually i i really care about this uh, it's it's look one of the things that really blew me away when I came to the U.S. I, I you know, I came at, uh, at, we left at 19, I came at, when I was 19, I came at uh, 20, because it took a little bit of time to get to the United States. But basically, I came to the U.S. and I just started college anew. I had had two years of college back in the USSR. And I said, you know what, I'm not even going to transfer any of those ridiculous credits, you know, Marxism, socialism, and all that, you know, political theory. So I just started from, from, from freshman year. And I took a class on um, on Western thought, I think it was called. Um, and we were reading just, just like a wide variety of philosophers, thinkers, literature that I had never heard about and, and never, you know, never had available to me. And I, it's, it's one of my most kind of powerful experiences, my early experiences in America, where being exposed to these ideas just gave me such an incredible sense of, I don't know, freedom and sense of uh, like your world changes when you're exposed to, to ideas, right? And I just find that it's so, um, I don't know, that it is, it's so limiting. It's, it's like when you take these ideas away from people, you know, take, give these ideas to people, expose them to them and let them decide what, what works for them, what they think about them but broaden their horizons. I mean, it's just, it was one of these, those moments where I realized just how narrow our lives were back in the USSR, which is interesting because, you know, a lot of times you hear about how great the education was in the Soviet Union and people were so educated. And I think in general, to some degree, it's true. Uh, Certainly science education was good. But when it comes to humanities, they were so manipulated and so uh, like there were so much was out of reach that you really came out of there with a very narrow view of the world. And and yeah, I feel very passionately about it, that um, that kind of not letting people access ideas. It's, it's just uh, it's, it's just really sad. And obviously, and look, freedom of speech is not such a simple question. Obviously, you know, there isn't absolutism about it or freedom of, uh, of, I mean, I don't know, we can talk about hate speech and things like that, but, um, but we're just talking about mainstream complex ideas that are part of our history. Yeah. That's exactly right. Look, like I said, I don't want to keep you too long. So if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you um, and I'll put all the links in the description, please go ahead. Sure. Sure. Uh, People can uh, follow me on Twitter at Isa Tabaro. And I'm, I'm there. Well, well, thank you very much, Isabella. It was great talking to you. Same here. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back.